Students who are the first members of the family to attend college often arrive with less information about navigating the college experience than students who had a parent that attended college. In this episode, we discuss the role that social capital plays in student success, retention, and persistence. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Dr. Julie Martin. She is an Associate Professor of Engineering Education at The Ohio State University and former Program Director for Engineering Education at the National Science Foundation's Directorate of Engineering. She has conducted a wide variety of studies on factors associated with the underrepresentation of women and people from minoritized ethnic and racial backgrounds in engineering education. And she is a new Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Women and Minorities in Science and Engineering. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Today's teas are... I'm not drinking tea. I'm drinking water. Well, that's a good healthy choice. That's (laughs) that's what tea is mostly anyway. Yeah. I'm drinking black raspberry green tea. And I have oolong today. Wow. I know. I am out of control. (laughs) (laughs) We invited you here to talk about your research on engineering education. But could you tell us first a bit about your path to an engineering degree? I think I really had two motivations for getting an engineering degree, and the first one was really personal. Since I was a toddler, I have had a pacemaker, which was needed to make my heart beat regularly. And somehow I grew up understanding that engineers, along with doctors and other folks, contributed to designing and making those devices and improving that technology that really affects my quality of life every day. And then the second part of it was that I also had adults in my life that were encouraging my interest in math and science, and it was something that I was good at and enjoyed, and they helped me connect those interests to majoring in engineering when I got to college. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted your research interest on barriers for women and other underrepresented groups in engineering specifically? Well, the obvious first part of that is that I was a woman studying engineering. And then early in my career, I worked at the University of Houston, and that was a fabulous place to work. The student population there, really diverse. There are many students who come from the greater Houston area, and that's a really diverse city. So the students I worked with, they came from a variety of cultural backgrounds and economic backgrounds, and many of them were first-generation college students. And my position was as the director of recruitment and retention for the College of Engineering. So I was talking with students who were considering engineering as a college major. And then I was working with those same students who were already engineering majors or the students that later came in as engineering majors. So I started to see all of these, I guess I would call them structural issues that were really making it difficult for them to succeed. So there were students there that worked full-time on top of taking a full credit load of 18 hours of engineering courses because they had to pay for their tuition or because they needed to contribute to their family or both. And when I talk about structural issues, one example of that is most professors' office hours were only offered at specific times. 
So if a student was working in addition to going to school, they might not be able to get to the professor's office hours because they were working at that same time. So they couldn't even get there when they had a question. This is, I think, an example of how a particular group, in this case, working students, can unintentionally get marginalized in engineering education. Those professors weren't trying to put up those barriers for the students who worked, but it was still a real challenge for those students. Did you come across any other structural barriers other than some of these time conflicts? I think that that's sort of an example that cuts across a lot of different groups of folks, students that are working. Some of the other kinds of things I think had to do with generational status in college. So some students who were first generation in their family to go to college, or maybe the first person in their family to go to college, didn't necessarily understand how to navigate the university system. And that was from everything from the application process, filling out the FAFSA, federal application form for student aid, and all the way to even necessarily understanding what office hours were and that that was a time that you could go talk to the professors about anything related to questions that you had in class. You've done quite a bit of work on the effect of social capital on persistence in engineering degrees. Could you tell us a little bit about what you were looking at? And as part of that, could you explain what is meant by social capital? I was initially drawn to the idea of social capital because it's really about relationships. And that's something that's really important to me in my life. So the way that I define social capital is the resources that you have in your social network, in the relationships that you have. And so this research that I've done is really based on my belief that everybody needs access and support to making informed decisions about their academic and career plans. So by studying social capital, what we're really looking at is how do people get the information and resources that they need to succeed? So to achieve their goals. And in the context of getting an engineering education, achieving their goal would be getting an engineering degree. What did you find in terms of the impact of social capital on student persistence? One of the things that I've looked at a lot in my research is studying social capital from the perspective of looking at students' generational status in college. How is social capital similar or different for different groups of students? And when we look at students who are the first generation in their family to go to college, first generation college students, versus students who have parents that went to college, which I call continuing generation college students, there are some interesting similarities and some interesting differences as well. So for example, for those two groups, students who are first-generation college students, and those who are continuing-generation college students, many of the same people are in their social networks. Many of them have teachers and family members and peers and other educational kinds of personnel. But sometimes the role that each of those different groups of people play can be different. For example, continuing-generation college students may have parents that know things like how to navigate the application system to get into college or how to navigate a university campus or a university system. And first-generation college students, their families may not have that same kind of what we call instrumental knowledge to help them succeed, but they have shown like really, really strong emotional support 
And we call that expressive social capital. So when their families really encourage them to get a degree, many of the students talk about how their families are behind them 100%. And so they receive a lot of support for going to college and for getting an engineering degree from their families. It's just different kind of support than continuing generation college students receive from their families. What role do faculty play in terms of social capital for these two groups? Because I imagine in some cases it might actually be really different without us realizing it. Yes. So I think one of the really interesting things is that I think faculty have an important role to play for all students. And this can be especially powerful for first-generation college students. One of the things that we see is that sometimes first-generation college students experience a delayed access to resources because they don't know necessarily how to navigate the campus system or the university or the educational system. They might not know, for example, that there is an academic success center or a tutoring center, or they might not know that it could be important to join study groups or student organizations. And as a result, it might be a few semesters before they figure that out, kind of figure it out the hard way. And so professors and faculty can play really important roles in a couple of different ways. I think they can help make sure that some of what we might hear called the hidden curriculum of going to the university and some of that intrinsic knowledge that folks that work in the university system or that have families that went to college might know is available upfront for all students. So they can do things like connect students to places on campus, like I mentioned for academic resources. They might be able to share opportunities that they have for undergraduate research or other kinds of things like that that help students get involved. Faculty can encourage students to join student organizations. That's one thing that's been really shown to affect student persistence and their sense of belonging and encourage students to form study groups. And faculty can also help students build their professional networks. And this can be something that can be really important, not just while they're getting a degree, but after they get out and get a job or during their college studies, if they want to do a co-op or an internship. And then some of the things that we may not think about as faculty have turned up to be really important. So just faculty sharing their own academic and professional experiences are things that students refer to and say to themselves like, well, you know, if she can do it, then I can do it too. Or it also can help normalize students' feelings about maybe the difficulty of their courses or the difficulty of persisting in an engineering program. Those kinds of things can really be just as important as some of what we call instrumental actions that are actually connecting students to resources and information on campus. One of the things that I've experienced in my classes, I'm a designer, so it's related to engineering in some ways. We have some of the same kinds of behaviors in the field, is that students don't always understand what professional development opportunities can be or what the benefit of going to a conference is. And it may be just because the students never had a family who did things like that. It just wasn't a part of their everyday conversation. So sharing what it's like to go to one of those kinds of events and what you get out of it, and then personally inviting a student who seems hesitant but might really benefit from it, and then also helping them find the resources to go can be really useful. Exactly. Those are exactly the kinds of things that I'm talking about. So not only helping the students understand the value of it, but then putting that extra bit in there making sure that it's accessible and available to all students. 
with respect to finances and those kinds of things. It also sounds like the social capital things that you're talking about would be particularly important in first year classes or gateway courses into a major. I think some of these things that we've been talking about with first generation students may have delayed access to some of the resources that are on campus. It's just because they haven't been made aware yet that they exist. So first year courses can be really important for that. Absolutely. What are some of the barriers that you find with continuing generation of students that we might not expect? So I don't know that I've necessarily identified barriers there. But one of the things that's really interesting to me is the roles that families play and how that is different for these two different groups of students. You mentioned that first-generation college students have really staunch support from their families, often for going to college, and feel like their families are behind them 100%. And that kind of expressive support, that emotional support can be really important. And certainly continuing generation college students report those kinds of things as well. Sometimes it has a bit of a different meaning because first generation college students are often motivated to get a college degree to have a better life than their parents did. And they might define that as just a more stable job or a more stable income or being able to work in an area where you're not, for example, doing manual labor. So what's interesting for me then about continuing generation college students is how often they start out with the family support that's able to give them specific information and resources about applying for college, about going to college, maybe even about things like selecting their coursework. And what we see is that through time, students who have been in college longer report that the role that their families play changes during the course of the time that they're in college. They come to rely more and more heavily on their peers. And actually, both groups of students talk about that, that the support that they get from their peers, the information and resources that they get from their peers is really important. And these family roles change from a parent who might be helping the student with everything, with filling out the financial aid application, with filling out the application, with selecting the courses in the early years to the friends becoming the people who the student really relies on and the families then providing the emotional support to persist and to finish. It seems like helping to develop a strong network on campus is helpful. Could we do that perhaps by encouraging more group work and more peer interaction and peer instruction, especially in introductory courses, but perhaps all the way through? Yes, absolutely. And even when it's not something that happens officially in the class, It's really important to help students form these networks outside of class as well. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about studying social capital is that it's studying the student experience in college, not just from the perspective of what's happening in the classroom. That's a really important part. And we can apply the social capital ideas to what's happening inside the classroom. But as soon as the students leave your classroom after 50 minutes or 75 minutes, then what happens then? And that's really when the majority of the college experience takes place and the majority of the learning and the majority of the things that can affect students' persistence. So that part's really important too. So anything that we can do that helps students connect with their peers and their near peers, students that may be a few years ahead of them or graduate students in class, but also keep those connections out of class is really important. And that's one reason I mentioned supporting and promoting student organizations. 
So that's one thing that most faculty may feel like is not really part of their job description is to encourage students to become involved in student organizations. But even doing something as simple as making announcements about when student organizations are going to meet in class can lend that weight from a faculty member to encourage students to do things like that outside of class as well. So we focused a lot of the discussion on the difference in terms of first generation and continuing. Can you talk a little bit about some things that might specifically impact underrepresented groups? When we start thinking about social capital, the theory of social capital talks about the fact that typically people who are not in a majority position can have different kinds of access to social capital than people who are in the majority position. And in my work, we focused on the generational status in college because that's where we have seen the difference. I'm absolutely not trying to say that being a woman in engineering where women are at best about 20% of the population or being from an underrepresented ethnic or racial group is not important. All of those identities are important for students and they intersect and have different effects based on whether you, for example, might be a woman who is from a minoritized ethnic or racial group. So I'm not trying to say that those things aren't important. They absolutely are. What we are focusing on is generational status in college because that's where we see the biggest qualitative difference in the way that students talk about their experiences, selecting engineering as a major and then persisting in the discipline. One of the issues that often come up is that in engineering and STEM fields in general, we see a lot of people dropping out along the way, that many people start the discipline and then they either drop out or change their majors into other areas. And the rate of return to students investing in education in these fields is pretty much the highest that we can get in any field. And yet we see a lot of people dropping out. Is that more common for first-generation students? And if so, why might that be occurring? I think that there's multiple reasons that students leave the major, and there have been a lot of work done over the last at least 40 years to study that. I think that the benefit of looking at it from the social capital perspective is that we're able to think about how the things that happen in the classroom and the things that happen outside the classroom can help students be successful. And so I wouldn't say that it's more common or less common for first-generation college students. But when we think about it from this perspective, we can think about what are these ways in which we can help students tap into the information and the resources and the emotional support and all of the assets that they have in their social networks, in their relationships, and then help them make informed decisions about what they want to do. Some students leave engineering because it wasn't the best choice for them to start with. And honestly, I'm fine with that. I'm really interested in helping students make the most informed choices about what they want to do with their college major and their career. So for those who might not have families who are doing the rah, 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 like support of education, there's a lot of students who don't necessarily have that particular support network. Are there ways that we can help foster that on campus for students? I think we can foster it on campus for students regardless of what kind of support they have at home. One of the things that we've seen in my research when we're looking at first-generation college students in particular is that there can be adults in the lives of K-12 students who are really important. And even though they're not their actual relatives, we call them fictive kin 
because they are really influential in their lives. So this may be somebody who works at a STEM summer camp that the student attended or at an after-school program. And those are people that are providing information and resources for the students about what they might want to major in in college and giving them information and resources to help them make informed decisions about what they want to major in in college. I certainly felt that as a student, I had people outside my family. I was a first-generation college student. And so I certainly had people who were in that network of people. I had a faculty member in my high school who wasn't even a person that I took classes with, (laughs) but who just kind of took me under her wing and made sure I knew how to navigate certain systems because my family didn't really know how to navigate those systems and supported me in the idea that I could do things that maybe didn't occur to me. And I think the really important lesson from that is that everybody can have a role. If you're a scout leader or you're a summer camp teacher or you're someone in the community, everybody can have a role in supporting students. I guess the trick then becomes how do we help everyone realize that? Yes, (laughs) that is the trick. And that's one reason why I work really hard in my research to try to provide a lot of implications for practice. So, you know, taking the research back to what does that really mean for somebody who's a faculty member? What does that mean for somebody who's a scout leader? What does it mean for somebody who is an academic advisor? And so really helping people understand that everybody has a role and maybe giving them some examples of the types of things that they could do, even if those are not things that you're able to do in your own particular role. Hopefully it can inspire you. What are some specific things that faculty might be able to do to provide a more supportive classroom climate? We've talked about some, but are there any additional methods? I think one of the things that faculty can do, and many of us don't necessarily do very often, is talking about the kinds of things that are available for students outside of the class, and not just academic resources. So most faculty will say, well, if you need tutoring, you go to this place and these times. But the kinds of things that can really help student persistence and really help them develop social capital with people all across the campus might be things that faculty normally aren't really involved in. So those might be the student organizations on campus that I mentioned, or encouraging students to form study groups so that they're working with their peers and developing those really important relationships that become critical. And those kinds of things are just as important as the kinds of things that happen inside of the classroom. Sometimes I've had discussions with students who are struggling with time management or these other kinds of things that connecting them to the fact that there's a gym on campus to relieve some stress or to build that into their schedule and just pointing out that there are yoga classes or that there's this other kind of group that has nothing to do with academics at all might be a great place to find some relaxation and support in a really different kind of way. And I think they've always been surprised at me saying, well, did you schedule in something like that? Yeah. And you know, what I love about that is that's thinking holistically about the student as a person. That's thinking about all the things that they need to be happy and fulfilled and ready to come to class and to learn and then to go be involved in other campus activities. And so I think that that approach of thinking about students holistically And not just thinking about what's happening with them in that brief time that we have with them in class. It can be really critical for student success for everybody. I'm really curious about how someone who's coming out of engineering 
comes across the idea of social capital as a way to study this? That is an interesting question. So my degrees are in material science and engineering. And I actually, as an undergrad, did a minor in the humanities. And my reason at the time was very simple. I wanted to be able to have at least one class a semester that I didn't have to bring a calculator to. (laughs) But I have always enjoyed reading and writing and thinking about things that aren't related to engineering. And it wasn't until after I got my degree and started actually working in academia teaching engineering that I started to realize how I could sort of marry those two interests. My very first teaching job was at Virginia Tech, and I was there during the time that they were forming one of the first departments of engineering education. So even though at the time I was really focused on just teaching in the first year engineering program, it was really interesting because I was hearing all these things about this new area of research interest. And so I started to begin to get some training in that area and eventually, by a few years later, had moved my entire focus over to engineering education. The reason I approach you about doing this topic is I saw on Facebook that you had received an award recently for your work in this area. I think the award you're referring to was the Betty Vetter Award for Research from the WePAN organization, Women in Engineering Proactive Network. And that's an organization that I've been really involved in over the past number of years that is supporting culture change in the culture and climate in engineering education. You always end with the question, what are you doing next? I have just started my position at The Ohio State University, and I've just started my position as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Women and Minorities in Science and Engineering. So those two things are going to keep me quite busy for the near future. Well, sounds exciting. A nice new adventure. Absolutely. And you're doing some really important work, and I hope you continue to be successful with this. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great discussion. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.